Hello again, fight fans. Welcome to the Neutral Corner, episode 112. I am Michael Montero for Boxing Monthly Magazine. As you can see, the new March issue is out and BoxingMonthly.com. All right, guys, uh, we have a lot to catch up to. We were gone last week. Uh, we have a couple of interviews posted up on the channel. Interview with Sergey Kovalev and Dmitry Bivol and Ringside Recap from uh, the Superfly 2 card. All that's on the channel, so go check it out. Before we get into some <clears throat> quick news and notes, just want to give you guys a reminder to go on the Apple Podcast, go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating and a review, spread the word about the TNC Podcast. Also, spread the word about the YouTube channel. We do a lot of stuff on the YouTube channel, not just the Neutral Corner, but we do the interviews, the breakdown videos, all that good stuff, right? So spread the word about those two things. Thank you so much for all the support. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Thank you all. It means so, so much to us. All right, a lot to catch up on. Let's start with some news and notes. So this Saturday, March 3rd, we were supposed to see Jermall Charlo and Hugo Centeno Jr. fight for an interim WBC middleweight title. That fight has been postponed. It's not canceled, it's postponed. And it's likely gonna be put, it's gonna be added to the April 21st PBC broadcast. So Adrian Broner and Omar Figueroa were originally scheduled for April 21st, right? Adrian Broner got into some trouble, arrested in a mall in Atlanta, I believe for groping a woman. Omar Figueroa got in trouble, a DUI. So he, both of these guys have been arrested. For a while, it looked like it was gonna be taken off the schedule, but I checked on the PBC site today, it's still there. BoxRec still has it up. So BoxFax, all that stuff has it. So I think it's still happening and they're gonna add this Jamal Charlo, Hugo Centeno fight to that card. So the fight's been postponed because Centeno, I believe he has a rib injury. But uh, it's still going to happen. Either way, you guys know what I think about that fight. It's a way for Uncle Al to get uh, an interim title into the hands of Charlo so he can eventually get a title shot. Obviously, we know now that Canelo and Golovkin are going to fight in Las Vegas. Like I told you guys they were going to. I told you it was going to be announced in mid to late. Well, I said mid-February. It ends up being late February, whatever. But uh, the winner of that fight is going to have among them the WBC middleweight title. Depending on how that plays out, and if they want to have a rubber match, fight a third time later this year, maybe that title gets stripped. Maybe Charlo ends up with this WBC middleweight title. I don't know. We'll see. Also, uh, one fight, you know, big buzzkill here. Jorge Linares and Vasily Lomachenko, that fight is dead. They were talking about doing that fight May 12th. It is off. Now, a lot of people are asking, who is to blame? Now look, all sides carry blame here. For, for the record, Jorge Linares, Vasil Lomachenko, their two teams wanted the damn fight. Both fighters are willing to do it. It's up to the promoters. And here's the deal with Bob Arum, top rank, and their deal with ESPN. They have dates scheduled out throughout the rest of the year. This has all been pre-negotiated. It's all scheduled out. Uh, some of the dates are literally just top rank on ESPN, TBA. We don't know yet who's gonna fight you know, or, or uh, where they're going to fight. We don't know any of that. But for May 12th, they've been talking about it for a while now. Top rank has. May 12th, Vasily Lomachenko moving up to lightweight, fighting on ESPN May 12th. That's it. Now, obviously, that is one week after the Canelo-Golovkin rematch. And what happens after a pay-per-view fight on HBO? A week later, 
they show the replay. So that's what we're going to get May 12th on HBO. So we're going to get, regardless, we're going to have two cards the same night going head-to-head. For top rank, it's going to be on ESPN, headlined with Vasily Lomachenko versus, at least it's been TBA. I'm going to tell you who it's going to be in a minute here. But um, on the other side of the street, on HBO, it's going to be the Canelo Golovkin replay. And then I'm sure Golden Boy Promotions will put up some sort of co-feature or something like that in in a different card in a different city that they'll add to the broadcast. Okay. Here's where it gets fuzzy, okay? Golden Boy Promotions, who promotes Jorge Linares, did not like the idea of having a Golden Boy Promotions fighter on ESPN the same night the Canelo Golovkin replay is on HBO. And in theory, I understand that. They don't understand why Bob Arum just can't change the date. Well, they know damn well why Bob Arum can't change the date because they're in this business too. And they understand that there are very few dates on these networks and this stuff is scheduled months in advance at least the dates are with the promoter sometimes you're given like a series of dates sometimes it's like okay we have this date in april in may and june pick one right that happens more in the premium networks on regular cable they like to get this stuff scheduled out way in advance because they have all sorts of programming and you're going up against tons of sports right so in theory i understand Golden Boy's dilemma. I understand Top Rank's dilemma, but I'm putting more of the blame of this on Golden Boy, and I'll tell you why. Nobody gives a damn about the Canelo Golovkin replay. People are going to watch it, but let's be honest, guys. A lot of you are going to stream that fight. You're going to find an illegal stream. You're not going to buy the pay-per-view. And even those of you who do, whether you watch it or not live, you're going to watch a replay on YouTube hours after the fight. People are going to post it. And yeah, the promoter will go out and find those and they'll take it down. They have filters to catch all that stuff, the copyright and all that, HBO. They'll take all that down, but people will keep posting it. It'll be posted in Russian and Spanish and in Lithuanian and a million different languages. It's going to be in Swahili on YouTube. And you guys will watch that fight two or three times before it's replayed March or March, May 12th. So who gives a shit? This is a real cross-promotional opportunity for Golden Boy, who really isn't doing a whole lot for all their other fighters right now. To me, from what I see, they're going all in, 100% on Canelo. And I get it, that makes them a lot of money right now, but they need to start servicing their fans and their other fighters better. And they were doing a good job a year or two ago, and they've kind of fell off recently, and they've just been all Canelo all the time. So with Linares, say you do the fight with Linares and Lomachenko on ESPN. All week, they're going to be promoting that fight on ESPN. You guys saw the last time Lomachenko fought. For the the week or two prior, they were running all sorts of vignettes on SportsCenter, all this stuff. They were promoting Lomachenko's fight. It's going to be the same thing with this May 12th fight. You could have Linares on there, and as part part of the cross-promotion, you could say, by the way, also... May 12th, on HBO, we're doing the replay of Canelo Golovkin, who just had the rematch last week in Las Vegas. So, boom, ESPN is in tens of millions more homes than HBO. In more than that, it is in every bar, every airport, every bus station in America, right? It's not, it's in, it's in restaurants and stuff. HBO is not. HBO is in very few bars, very few restaurants. It's not at any airport or bus station. So you have a massive promotional opportunity 
if you're Golden Boy, for your fighter, Jorge Linares, who's been traveling the world fighting for you for a while now and deserves it. And you missed out on this opportunity. Was Linares going to get tuned up and beat by Lomachenko? Yes. But this was a huge cross-promotional opportunity for them that I think they're missing out on. For Lomachenko and top rank, they have their fight anyway. They had a plan B. That's why they're not sweating any of this. And I'll talk more about that later in this episode. Okay, that's it with news and notes. Guys, we have two weeks worth of fights to review. A lot of stuff to talk about. So let's get right into it. Back on Friday, February 16th. It feels like that was months ago already. I was top rank on ESPN. And this card... The main event falls right into what I was just talking about in the news and notes section. So this was in Reno, Nevada. And in the main event, Ray Beltran finally gets that WBO lightweight title that Grandpa Bob has been trying to get in his hands for years. It rightfully should have been his years ago when he fought Ricky Burns over in the UK and was flat out robbed. But he screwed up two other chances. Uh, by per- messing around, performance dancing, drugs, and all kinds of other stuff. He ran into Terrence Crawford on one occasion, and there's no shame in losing to him. But anyway, here on his fourth try, he wins a unanimous decision over Paulus Moses, wins the vacant WBO lightweight title. The scores were 116-112, 117-111 twice. Uh, those scores were a bit too wide, in my opinion. This was a 115-113 win for Beltran, in my opinion. But Moses, because of the political... Uh, backing here in this fight was going to have to knock out Beltran to get the win, in my opinion, or win nine or 10 rounds on the cards. He was not going to get the damn decision. CompuBox showed this as a tough fight. Neither fighter landed more than five punches than his opponent landed in uh, nine of the 12 rounds. So it was a close fight. And there were only a handful of rounds that were a clear winner for either guy. Most people thought that this fight was closer than the judges had it. I'm not alone in that opinion. Okay. But for top rank and Bob Arum, it look, I like Ray Beltran as a person. You talk to the guy, you see him in the gym, he sparred with Manny all those years. Everybody around the guy likes him. Top rank likes him. A lot of the journalists here in Southern California like the guy. I understand it. Given the political climate in the recent years with the immigration issue and all that stuff going on, Ray Beltran fits right into that. And guess what? Grandpa Bob knows that. And it's a way to market this guy and promote him to casual fans. And they talked about that on the ESPN broadcast. And guess what they're going to do now? They're going to put him up against Vasily Lomachenko May 12th on ESPN. And what do you think a huge storyline to that fight's going to be? You guessed it, right? And then again, in these political times, it's a feel-good story for this guy to get his title, but it's also the, the background, everything going. He's, he's not just fighting for the title. He's fighting for his citizenship, all this stuff, right? These storylines that you've heard time and time again, that's all going to be played up to the upteenth degree when he fights Lomachenko May 12th. Um, you know, Beltran gets a little bit of a pass for some of the shady stuff he's done. And... I'm saying that, full disclosure, that he was robbed in that first title uh, attempt. He should have had the title way back when. So him getting the title now, that's kind of a way of uh, you know him getting justice. But all the stuff that he's kind of pulled, I do think it's hypocritical that a lot of the media here in the Los Angeles area, Southern California area, just seems to give this dude a pass when they ream some other fighters 
who have the cloud of PEDs over their head. All right. This guy, Beltron, he did have a suspension. He served it. He's been tested. He's been clean. Barely gets out of this fight with the title. And of course, I favor Lomachenko big time against him May 12th. He's, you know, Beltron's going to get his cash out. He's going to get that big, big payday, that title defense. And he's earned it. He's worked hard. I get it, right? His family, they're going to be in a much better situation. They're going to be set. For Lomachenko, he's going to now say that he had has the WBO titles at 126, 130, and now he's going to get it at 135. So all that works out for top rank. Here's what I hope. I hope that later this year, Jorge Linares and Vasil Lomachenko can fight. Because if and when, look, when Lomachenko beats Beltran, he's going to be the number two ranked fighter at lightweight. Would you rate Robert Easter above him? No. Mikey Garcia is not a lightweight. He's a non-factor, right? So number one by default is Linares. And I know he has the ring title, but I don't particularly agree with him having the ring title. Um, I get it, you know, but I don't really consider him the lineal lightweight champion, the, the man in the division. I just don't. But he's the number one. Lomachenko is going to be number two. So if these two fight later this year, that's number one versus number two, that will crown a legitimate lightweight champion in my eyes. So hopefully all this can be worked out later down the road and we get what we want to get by the end of this year. Also on this card, Igadijas Kavaliauskas scores a TKO six win against David Avanesian. Avanesian is a good, solid professional fighter. I'm not calling him elite, not calling him A-level, but he's a guy who can take care of himself. Good, solid fighter. He's dropped decisions to Andre Klimov and Lamont Peterson, but he's never been stopped or even hurt. Referee Tony Weeks stopped this contest because the mean machine got mean and hurt this guy. And Styles make fights, but in recent fights, the mean machine has kind of looked not so mean. He's looked a little more passive and almost, I wondered if he had plateaued a bit. That mean machine came back in this fight. He looked real good. And this was the kind of statement you want to see from a prospect that's ready to be a contender. And I think it won't be long before the mean machine is ready for a title in that wide open division. Also on this card, prospect Shakur Stevenson, who's a featherweight, and Robson Conciel, uh, who's a lightweight from Brazil, both won by decision. Not really sold on either guy, especially Stevenson. I don't know if we have a future champion there or not. Right now, more suspect than prospect, in my opinion. But we'll wait and we'll see. He, he kid's a pup. Now, on Saturday, February 17th, we had a bunch of boxing on both sides of the pond. Let's start in Manchester United Kingdom. World Boxing Super Series, where George Groves wins a unanimous decision over Chris Eubank. The scores were 117-112, which I thought was a good score. 116-112. And 115-113 from Judge Marcus McDonnell. What the hell is he watching? Chris Eubank Jr. won two, maybe three rounds in this fight. I thought it was a wide points win for George Groves. Now, a lot of you gave me shit because I picked Eubank. And that pick was very, very wrong because Groves handled him so well. Uh, look, I will admit, I drank the Kool-Aid on Chris Eubank. I got some parts of my prediction right. But of course, the, the only result that matters is who wins. And I got that really wrong. Here's the thing, though. A lot of very good boxing analysts and writers picked Eubank. And the bookies picked him. And they always get it right. Okay? So this dude fooled a lot of people. And this was a case where you had a guy who looked the part, 
um, seemed to be peaking, you know, young, up and coming, and then an older guy who had been stopped before badly seemed to be on a downslide of his career, uh, even though they're really only like 18 months apart in age. We were just all fooled. The bottom line is this. Uh, look, I'll give you bank credit for this. He got cut over the right eye from a headbutt in the third round. He fought through that. He showed some heart and some determination and really what I would consider elite level stamina, which in boxing is really important. He does have that. He's got the motor, but um, nothing else. Nothing else. And the way this guy trains, look, I saw the post on Instagram where he has that stupid machine. At, it looks like a psychedelic, futuristic drum machine from the, you know, from the, I don't know, the, the year 3052, you know, where there's like eight different pads and he punches the shit out of it for 30 seconds. And he posts it on Instagram. I saw all that stuff and I thought, oh, he's doing this for the chicks. They love it. Their panties get all soaked when they see that stuff. And he's just having fun. But behind the scenes, this dude's working on his craft. And he's learning his lesson from what happened against Billy Joe Saunders all the years back. And he's going in the ring and he's screwing around because he's fighting such weak opposition. He's pulling a Deontay Wilder and fighting down to the level of his opposition. But they're really working on stuff because his dad was a professional fighter and a damn successful one. So he knows better and he's teaching his son. These are the things I thought in my head. Boy, was I wrong. Chris Eubank Jr. is delusional. And his father's delusional too. And you could tell this dude grew up coddled, being told how special and different he is everywhere he goes. And he still believes it, even after this loss, where quite frankly, George Groves didn't look great. On this night, David Benavidez, and especially Gilberto Ramirez, not only beat him, but stop him. Jose Uzcategui would have given George Groves a good push and possibly beat him on that night. I didn't see anything special from George Groves. And in fact, this fight was kind of a poor man's version of what Keith Thurman and Sean Porter gave us a couple years ago. In a fight that some people thought was like the fight of the year, but I thought it was very overrated, where there was a lot of flailing and lunging, but it wasn't that fundamentally sound. That's kind of what we saw in this fight, especially from from Eubank. All Groves did was employ Boxing 101 fundamentals, and that was enough to beat Eubank, who is so crude and fundamentally flawed. There are 15-year-old kids in my gym where I train that have better boxing skills than Eubank, and they're amateurs. They haven't even, you know, they're still junior amateurs and stuff. So what, where did both fighters go from here? Okay. Eubank, Lost to Saunders in 2013, has done nothing but do cool Instagram videos with a thousand punches in 10 seconds and post that on, you know, all over social media, then come to LA and party in between fights. He needs to learn how to box. He needs to get the hell out of the UK, get the hell away from his father, and not even come to LA to train. He needs to go somewhere off the radar and learn how to box. He's not going to do it, though. He's delusional. He was back in the gym Sunday after that loss to Groves, training the same way. I saw a clip of him hitting the water bag. Bah, 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 you know, tapping it a billion times, never extending his elbow. Just bent elbows, short little arms, tapping the water bag. It's like, dude, did you not learn a thing? It's obvious he hasn't. And it's just from, he said, oh, well, we'll go back down to middleweight because, you know, the weight gave us an issue. Well, it didn't give you an issue the last few fights, did it? I got news for you. 
Super middleweight's a very weak division. Middleweight's stacked. There are probably, I, I think there are probably 10 middleweights I would favor to be Chris Eubank right now. Maybe more. Maybe more than 10. He's just not that good, guys. So he's done. Stick a fork in him. He's done. He's no one to keep an eye on. Now for Groves, who hurt his left shoulder, it's possible that um, the World Boxing Super Series is scheduled between him and Callum Smith. I'll talk about Callum Smith later in this episode. Um, at O2 Arena in June. Now, will Groves be healthy enough by June? I don't know. At the time I'm filming this, I don't have any word. I'm assuming not. So I hope the World Boxing Super Series does the right thing and delays that fight. Even if it needs to be delayed two, three months, delay the damn fight. Do it in the UK. It makes total sense there. I understand why they moved it from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia to the UK. You got two UK fighters. So delay the fight if you need to. As long as it happens this year, it's all good. And you still got the Cruiserweight finale, which will happen in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia in May. So I hope that's what happens. We'll see. There's going to be more we're going to have to talk about with this situation. Also on that card, featherweights Ryan Walsh and Isaac Lowe fought to a draw. And middleweight Tommy Lanford won the British middleweight title. Also on this day, uh, PBC had some fights on Fox and Showtime. Now on Fox from El Paso, Texas, uh, I was actually at a bar and I played a little social experiment and just watched people watch this broadcast. And it opened up with Caleb Plant beating Rogelio Porky Medina to improve the 17-0 at 10 knockouts. Virtually won every single round. But it was an awful sleep-inducing fight. And I watched people in the bar. The first few rounds, they were looking at this guy. And they're like, wow, look at this dude. He's big. He's athletic. He's ripped. He, he's so much faster than this guy. He's got these skills. He's got this swag. Look at him with all the tattoos and, and the haircut, the facial hair. This dude checks a lot of boxes. Maybe not demographic-wise, but everything else to give the mainstream American sports media exactly what they want in a prize fighter. And everyone in the bar was paying attention. But by about the third or fourth round, there was also female Olympic, I think it was skiing on one of the TVs in the bar. Everyone was watching female Olympic skiing more than an undefeated American boxer fighting on Fox. Amazing. So Caleb Plant with this win... And I could talk about the fact that he landed 100 jabs, only seven for Medina. Do you guys really want to hear all the punch numbers? Uh, one punch number, I'll, I'll, this, this just sums it up, okay? Plant landed six power punches around, and they're all on the back foot. When this guy throws right hands, he doesn't even turn his shoulder over. Oh, I'm hitting the mic here. Hopefully that didn't, it wasn't too loud. <laughs> but 101, boxing 101, right? Your, your coach will tell you, when you throw a right hand, this rear shoulder needs to come forward Past your left hand, you need to turn your shoulders. That's where you get some torque in it. He wasn't even doing that. He was staying back and shooting it just like this with his shoulders back. Absolutely nothing on it. His right hand's like a jab. So this guy is now rated number two by the IBF. This was for the number two IBF ranking. The IBF super middleweight champion right now is Caleb Truax, who uh, maybe Plant could beat just in terms of styles. Maybe he could beat him. But... Jose Uzcategui and Andre Durell are fighting a rematch this Saturday for the interim title or the number one spot. And I don't know, man. I think Uzcategui is going to win that fight. 
And I don't know if Plant matches up well with Uzcategui. So I just think Plant is eventually a knockout waiting to happen. We'll see. Against the right fighter. In the main event of this card, Devin Alexander and Victor Ortiz fight to a draw. Absolutely terrible decision. Two judges had it 114-114. And somehow Don Griffin had it for Ortiz 115-113. This was a close competitive fight, but Devin Alexander deserved to win this decision. Victor Ortiz, I'll give him credit. He pushed late, he pressed, he made it close, but there's no way in hell he won this damn fight, and it wasn't a draw. Uh, I'm not even gonna get into the copy box numbers. Where do these two fighters go from here? For Alexander, who had some losses, he had some substance abuse issues, he's cleaned himself up, deserved to win this fight, but where does he fit in? Where does Victor Ortiz fit in? I could see Victor Ortiz because this was a draw, quote-unquote, there's justification now maybe for him to fight Jesse Vargas. Maybe something like that could happen. Don't, you know, call me crazy, but maybe we see something like that. That fight in Los Angeles, maybe Uncle Al will go for it. Alexander, he already lost to Sean Porter in 2013. We don't need to see that again. But you know what? Danny Garcia also fought that same night, and he hasn't fought Danny Garcia yet. I'd like to see that matchup. Let's see Danny Garcia versus Devin Alexander. Why not? We're likely going to get Keith Thurman fighting Sean Porter again because of the WBC craziness and all the sanctioning body stuff going on. So why not make the, those fights that I suggested? All right, okay. I don't love any of it, but I think that that's the best way to go. PBC on Showtime, Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas. Danny Garcia scores a TKO 9 win over Brandon Rios. Somehow this was a WBC eliminator fight, even though Sean Porter's last fight was for the WBC silver title. Porter got a little nasty and talked a bunch of stuff, you know, a bunch of trash talk after this fight, uh, I think, um, to Thurman. Because I, I think this dude, he, he's tried to play the nice guy role. But he gets screwed over. He gets passed over all the time. And now he's trying to be mean, I guess, to try to get the fights. Either way, Danny Garcia beating a completely shot Brandon Rios in an absolutely meaningless fight. This fight told, told us nothing other than what we already knew. Brandon Rios was shot. We knew he was shot when he got tuned up and stopped by Timothy Bradley years ago. So somehow this is for a WBC eliminator position. We got to see Keith Thurman and Danny Garcia fight again. They fought last year. It was a good quality fight. It didn't set the world on fire, but a good quality fight. But Keith Thurman clearly beat Danny Garcia. And then before that, Keith Thurman clearly beat Sean Porter in a fight that I think was very overrated. So Danny Garcia is 34-1 and now with 20 knockouts. Is he an elite-level welterweight? Answer me that. Is he an elite-level welterweight at the full 147-pound limit? No catchweight crap. At the full welterweight limit, he has wins over a shot Pauli Malignaggi, a shot Robert Guerrero, the journeyman Samuel Vargas, lost to Thurman last year, eight rounds to four on my card, and now he just beat a completely shot Brandon Rios. That's not elite level welterweight. Now, he was competitive enough to win three or four rounds against Thurman, fine. But top 10, fine. But he's not a top five welterweight. I don't need to see him in there with any of those guys. Put him in there with Devin Alexander. As far as Brandon Rios goes, he needs to retire. It's done. It's been done. He beefed with Robert Garcia. They made back up before this fight. Cool. Robert needs to sit him down and talk to him. 
Brandon Rios really could have made a run at lightweight. When he beat Mike Elvarado back at the Stub Up Center, back when it was the Home Depot Center, I was there that night. What a great fight that was. What a great night that was. He should have went on a run there at lightweight. But he was so undisciplined in between fights. He'd blow up so much in between fights. He'd make Nassim Hamed and Ricky Hatton look anorexic. This guy had a crazy lifestyle outside the ring. And he lost the rematch to Alvarado, which should have never happened. He could have done something at lightweight. He was never going to be a pound-for-pound pound kind of guy or anything like that. But he could have went on a little title run there. But those years are over. His youth is gone. And now his health is at stake. I already see the warning signs of the heavy tongue. This dude's going to have issues later in life already. He needs to retire. That's it. Also on this card, David Benavidez wins unanimous decision over Ronald Gavril, the first defense of his vacant IBF WBC title that he won last September in their first fight. Remember, this was a rematch. Really, really great learning experience. And you could see the improvement from Benavidez. Uh, I thought this was a fantastic performance by him. Look, this guy did not have an extensive amateur career. He's only 21 years old. So for him to get those first 12 rounds with Gavriel, learn from that experience, it was a very close fight. He barely escaped. Remember, he was dropped late in that fight. He won, but he barely won. It was a close fight. Then he comes into this rematch and dominates and wins decisively. You can see the improvement. And it's not that Gavriel fought worse. I thought Gavriel fought even better. He hung tough. He took some hellacious punches. He showed a good chin, and he deserves to be back on American TV. I thought he earned that right with his performance. But for Benavidez to get this win in, in, this, in this way shows me that he's the real deal, and he's learning on the job. He's thinking. He's growing in there. I really, really like what I see from him. Um, man, I can't believe this guy's only 21 years old. 20 and 0 with 17 knockouts. Um, he's graduated from i was calling him a prospect with a title before he's a serious contender now he's a contender i know he has a title and some of you want to call him a champ but he's what i would call a contender in that division he's one of the top guys in that division he's either the second or third best super middleweight right now what's interesting he has the wbc title callum smith was rated number one in the wbc last time they released their ratings so depending on how the World Boxing Super Series turns out, what happens with that, maybe at some point we get a Benavidez-Smith fight. I don't know. We'll have to see what happens. Also on this card, um, your Dennis Ugas scores a TKO 7 win over Ray Robinson, improves to 21-3 with 10 knockouts. He dropped Robinson in the 1st and 7th. Robinson was deducted a point uh, after the 4th round for hitting after the bell. For Ugas... This guy was, uh, you know, a lot of people wrote him off after some losses. He lost a disputed split decision to Johnny Garcia in 2012, a disputed split decision to Emmanuel Robles in 2014. Lost a clear, absolutely legitimate, unanimous decision to Amiri Mom in 2014 as well. A lot of people wrote him off at that point, but he has battled back with six straight wins. He's a Miami-based Cuban, highly decorated amateur, won the 2005 World Amateur Championships, 2007 Pan America Games, bronze medal in the 2008 Olympics. He's someone we could take a look at again. All right, He seems to have turned a corner in his pro career. Thursday, February 22nd, Golden Boy Promotions on ESPN from Indio, California. Joseph Diaz Jr. scores a KO3 win over Victor Terrazas. 
dropped him twice in the first round, KO him, KO'd him with a body shot in the third round. He is now 26-0 with 14 knockouts. Supposed to face Gary Russell Jr. next, who has the title uh, there at featherweight. He's been his mandatory for a while now. I don't know what um, Team Russell's doing. When that fight was first being discussed, I favored Russell big time just because of the, the difference in athleticism and speed. However, Russell's been so damn inactive and has been fighting stiffs since his uh, decisive loss to Vasil Lomachenko. And by the way, no shame in that, right? No shame in that. But Diaz seems to be improving with each fight. And um, you'll find a video on my channel where we went to the gym and watched him and his dad work out. The things that they're working on, sitting down on his power more. He's never going to have the one hit or quitter, right? The, the huge knockout punch. But he is sitting down on his shots a bit more and fighting more as a pro. And I'm starting to lean toward Diaz in that matchup. Why not make that fight on the Canelo Golovkin 2 card? Makes perfect sense to put on that card, man. Also on this uh, card, Virgil Ortiz, who is an undefeated prospect from Texas at 140 pounds, improves to 9-0 with 9 knockouts with a TKO 3 win. Last Saturday, February 24th, a bunch of stuff. Bunch of cards. Let's start in Germany, in Nuremberg, where Callum Smith wins a unanimous decision over a fighter from Netherlands, uh, Nieki Holtzkin. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, this guy was a former kickboxing champion. Had fought nobody in boxing, though. Came into this fight 13-0 as a boxer, but had fought absolutely nobody. Um, Jurgen Brommer had to pull out. He pulled out the last second, the week of the fight. He said he had a bad flu. So he didn't want to do the fight. And they had this guy waiting as a substitute. He comes in. He had a big social media following. I think he's got like over 100,000 followers on Instagram and stuff. He's known from his kickboxing days. So he came into this fight and brought some fans, 34 years old, and he gave it his best. But you're not just going to walk into boxing and be able to compete, even with a guy like Smith, who is still an untested prospect. We didn't get any questions answered about Smith in this fight. Not really his fault. Uh, you know, he can't help that Brommer pulled out. But, um, you know, that's enough. A highly talented prospect is enough to beat a guy coming in from another sport. And it's just, it is what it is. So Smith is 24 and over 17 knockouts uh, now. He's still unproven as a, as a professional boxer. Still just a prospect. You know, it didn't look particularly amazing in this fight. Um just a jab fest. He won 118-110, 117-111 two times, and those were good scores. Now he's scheduled to face George Groves, June 2nd at O2 Arena. I think it's eventually going to get pushed back. I can't see how Groves is going to be ready to go June 2nd with a shoulder injury, but we'll find out. Either way, on the surface, you got to favor Groves. All the experience he has, even though he hasn't set the world on fire in his recent performances, Neither is Smith. Smith is shown to be uh, really nothing more than a jab and very, very much a one-trick pony, the way he fights, his rhythm and everything. I think Groves is going to time everything coming. It might take a few rounds. I think, uh, you know, maybe Smith can pull it out late on the cards or something, but I, I don't think so, man. I favor Groves big time. When you look at Smith, um, good regional amateur career in the UK. He was... Uh, got a silver in the 2010 Commonwealth Games. Did not qualify for the 2012 London Olympics. That would have been huge for him. And so far as a pro, he just hasn't looked great. Just hasn't 
impressed. And, you know, it, it's funny when they first announced the World Boxing Super Series Super Middleweight Tournament, my favorite was Callum Smith. And then I changed to Chris Eubank. Now Callum Smith is in the final. Funny how things work out. Also, on the 24th, there was a card at York Hall in London. Anthony Yard scores a retirement seven win over someone I've never heard of, Tony Averlant. Ronnie Clark scores a majority decision win in a minor upset against previously undefeated prospect Zelfra Barrett, who suffers his first loss as a pro, was dropped in the sixth. I thought he came back and fought bravely and showed uh, some real intestinal fortitude and made this thing close. And I actually think that this loss isn't going to hurt Barrett. I think it's going to make him better. If I were Warren, Frank Warren, I'd rematch these two immediately. Don't wait till next year. Do it this summer. The next time these two fight, put on a card there in London and have them rematch. I think it's the best thing you could do for Barrett. The heavyweight Daniel Dubois scores a TKO3 win over DL Jones for Dubois, who now has gone 12 rounds in seven fights as a pro. This was the first time he went more than two rounds, so I guess it's progress, but they got to get this guy more rounds. He needs to work on some stuff. Very raw. Now, great power, has the eraser, some definite tools. The guy needs rounds. You got to get him in there with someone who can go more than two or three rounds, guys. He's scheduled to fight on April 14th, so he'll be back in the ring. Right now, he's scheduled against TBA. Real quick note about Anthony Yard. They got to get that guy against better opposition. Right now, looks to be a little more sizzled than steak. He posts some of those Instagram videos throwing a thousand punch combinations on the mitts. I'm not going to call him Chris Eubank Jr. Not going to do that. But we need to see that guy against much better opposition and uh, see him build up. So that was all the action over in Germany, in the UK, over here in the United States. It was the Superfly 2 card. If you haven't seen my ringside recap video, make sure you check that out. Also, interviews posted with Dmitry Bivol and Sergey Kovalev, who were there in the house at the Forum. There were a bunch of fighters there in the house. Um, really, really fun atmosphere, man. Okay. The last fight, there was a little international broadcast before the HBO broadcast started. And of course, the HBO thing was a triple header, but uh, the undercards were streamed live. And on the last fight on the undercard, the international broadcast, Artem Delakian scores an upset win, unanimous decision win, over Brian Valoria to win the vacant WBA flyweight title. The scores were 118 to 109 three times. For Delakian, you know, kind of fought dirty in spots. In fact, he was deducted a point in the ninth round for pushing Valoria's head down. This was his first fight outside his native Ukraine. Uh, didn't really win any fans with his style. Not particularly exciting, kind of ugh to watch, but he wins a title. And that alone could earn him a spot on Superfly 3. It'll be interesting to find out because in the HBO opener, it was also a flyweight fight. Donnie Nietes scores a KO7 win over the Argentinian fighter Juan Carlos Revico for the first defense of his IBF flyweight title that he won last April. Nietes is now 41-1-4 with 23 knockouts. He's won titles at 105, 108, 112. This might have been his finest performance. At least his finest performance in years. He looked spectacular in this fight. You just got the feeling that this guy knew this was his moment, catching the right opponent at the right time, 
to my knowledge, Revico hadn't been stopped, at least not in this kind of fashion. I'd never seen him just beat up like this. Great performance. Uh, this was Nieta's first legit KO since Moises Fuentes back in 2014. So, on the Superfly 3 card, Nietes Delakian. Why not some flyweight unification? If not that, how about against Daigo Higa from Japan? Daigo Higa, he has one of the other flyweight titles. He was there in the forum that night. He would absolutely be down with fighting Nietes. Superfly 3. If we get Dani Nietes against Daigo Higa, who has a great action-friendly style, fan-friendly style, I'd love to see that matchup. But even if he's in there against Delakian, either way we get unification in the flyweight division, sign me up. Now, in the co-main, McWilliams Arroyo, the Puerto Rican fighter who I told you guys can box, the McWilliams brothers, or I'm sorry, the Arroyo brothers can box. Very underappreciated fighters. Scores a unanimous decision win over Carlos Quadras to win a vacant WBC silver super flyweight title, which is basically winning the mandatory position. And according to the WBC, this was a eliminator fight. The winner of this fight is supposed to fight the winner of the main event next. We'll see if they own up to that. I have a sneaking suspicion they won't. For Arroyo, he technically has three losses, right? His first loss was a, in a four-rounder, unanimous decision in a four-rounder, and his fourth pro fight, so pff, that doesn't matter. Then he was robbed against Amnat Rowan Roang in Thailand. Rowan Roang is a Thai fighter. Uh, he, he lost by split decision. He should have won that fight. He won it. I've seen that fight a couple times. He won that fight. Should have had a title there and should have carried that title into the ring against Roman Gonzalez when he fought him back on April 2016, also there at the Forum. When he uh, was competitive but lost wide on the cards to Chaco Latito, no shame there, right? No shame there. He hadn't fought since that April 2016 loss to Chaco Latito. So almost two years out of the ring, now, he's had some promotional issues, some fights falling through and stuff. Of course, there was the storms down in Puerto Rico, all the trouble down there. He really had that island on his back. And I thought that uh, he turned in a performance of his career. Great, great win for him. And I really hope he gets a crack at the winner of the main event. Speaking of which, we Saksil Wangek or Srisaket Swarungvisai, whichever you prefer, scores a unanimous decision win over, or I'm sorry, a majority decision win over Juan Francisco Estrada, the second defense of his WBC Super Flyweight title that he won off Chocolatito last year. So Judge Dave Moretti had it 114-114 a draw. I didn't particularly agree with that card. Kathy Leonard had it 115-113 for Rungvisai. That's exactly how I scored it. I think that was the fairest card. And somehow Steve Morrow had it 117-111 for Rungvisai. Absolutely horrible scorecard. And in a fight like this, which it was close, was competitive, it was very nuanced. There was some high-level craft going on in there with both guys just in different ways, different styles. You should not have a card this wide. You should not have a nine rounds to three card like this in a fight like this. So I think the California State Athletic Commission needs to sit down with Steve Morrow, watch the fight with him, and find out how he got to that card. This isn't a judge that's known for having really bad cards. So this isn't an Adelaide Bird situation, okay? 
But I don't quite understand how we got to that scorecard. And some of you have suggested corruption and blah. Absolutely ridiculous. Makes no sense. This was Juan Francisco Estrada, a Mexican fighter, fighting in Los Angeles in front of a predominantly Mexican-American crowd. They were booing Rung beside the entire fight, even after the fight, which I thought was classless and disgusting. But everything Estrada did, they were cheering for. So if there was going to be any crazy wackiness on the cards, you figure it would go Estrada's way. I just think this was a bad scorecard from a judge who should have been educated enough to have seen how close this fight was. So the absolute most I could see somebody giving Rung Visay is eight rounds. And that's giving him every benefit of every doubt. The absolute most I could see anybody giving Estrada is six rounds. And that's giving him every benefit of every doubt. This was a clear, close competitive win for Rung Visay. And that's how it should have been scored. I tweeted about this. I thought Estrada found something late in that fight. He's a slow starter. He's a counterpuncher by nature. He was watching a lot in the early rounds. I think he was very surprised by Rungvisai's strength and underrated skill. Uh, but the strength and uh, power physically bothered him. Rungvisai moved and pushed and mauled him all night long. But in the last few rounds, he made some adjustments and he found something. And I'm telling you right now, if these two do a rematch, and it looks like they might, that might be what's going to come up on Superfly 3. Uh, Tom Loeffler's already talking about it. And the WBC, you know, they change their rules whenever the hell they feel like it. So don't be surprised if Superfly 3 is headlined by a rematch between these two. If Estrada can start that fight the way he ended this fight... He's going to win that rematch. Mark my words. And then we're going to get a rubber match. Uh, by the way, outstanding 12th round that will probably end up being the round of the year. The 12th round of this fight was outstanding. As it stands right now, at 115 pounds, I told you the situation with Rung Visai, the WBC, and the Royal. But outside of that, Naoya Inouye has the WBO title, but he's moving up to 118 pounds. He's likely going to fight Jamie McDonald for his title. McDonald, the UK fighter, is probably going to travel to Japan for that fight. Imagine that, a UK fighter going to Japan. That is how popular Inouye is becoming in Japan. He is a brand there. So he's going to be up at Bantamweight fighting for a title. Jerwin Ancajas has the IBF super flyweight title, but... And he's probably the only guy in the division, now that you know you he's leaving, that can compete with Rungvisai in terms of size, just natural size and strength, right? But he's with Manny Pacquiao Promotions, and I just don't see them taking on Cajas over to HBO. I think he's going to be an ESPN fighter. You, you heard the rhetoric the last time Cajas fought on ESPN, just the, the constant comparisons to Pacquiao. They're trying to build up a storyline there. So I don't see him coming over to Superfly. Khalid Yafai is the WBA title. Uh, I'm not sold on him, okay? He's not ready for that level of opposition. Eddie Hearn knows that. He's not bringing him over to the USA for Superfly 3. So look, Superfly 3, I talked about the flyweight fights to make. I talked about the possible super flyweight fights to make. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I think that Tom Loeffler, 360 Promotions, and HBO got something here. These guys don't make a lot. I heard a lot of people complaining about the purses. Guys, 112 and 115 pounders, particularly ones who aren't American, 
they don't make a lot of money in America. That doesn't mean they're not getting back-end money from their home country when it comes to, I'm not even talking sponsorships and all that. I'm talking network money. They're getting more than what was listed. But for the American promoters and networks, it's cheap for them to fight. And for the way for them to make real money is to fight the best. So we got something here with this Superfly series. Okay, that's it with all the fights that took place over the last couple of weeks. Let's preview what's coming up this week. This Wednesday, February 28th in Tokyo, Japan, Daniel Roman is fighting Ryo Matsumoto for the first defense of his WBA Super Bantamweight title. Now, he won this title last September in Kyoto, Japan against Shun Kubo. Shun Kubo. And remember, I was part of that broadcast, right, with Thompson Boxing Promotions. And I remember asking Alex Campanovo, who's part of that team, would you guys go back to Japan? Because a lot of the titles in that division are over in Japan. He said, hell yeah, if the money's right, we're going to go back over there. Guess what they're doing? They're going right back over there. So he's going to go over there and defend this title. The very next day, Thursday, March 1st, there's another card in Tokyo, Japan. And on that card, Ryosuke Iwasa, Japanese fighter who has the IBF title at 122 pounds, is defending it against Filipino fighter Ernesto Sowolong. Uh, Iwasa has two losses in his career. He's a good quality fighter. His only losses are to uh, Shinsuke Yamanaka in 2011 and Lee Haskins in 2015. For Suolong, the, the Filipino fighter, uh, this will be his first fight in Japan. I like Iwasa to win that fight. If Iwasa wins that fight, if Roman's successful in his title defense, let's unify, guys. Let's make that happen later this year. The headliner of that card, though, Thursday, March 1st in Tokyo, Louis Neri, Shinsuke Omanaka doing a rematch. Now remember, these two fought back last August. Neri won. He beat Yamanaka to win the WBC Bantamweight title. But he also failed a drug test uh, administered by VADA through the Clean Boxing Program, which is the WBC's program. He tested positive for a substance called Zilpaterol, which has been compared to Clenbuterol in that... It has been found in contaminated beef in Mexico and other countries. And there are multiple athletes that have had issues with this drug and contaminated meat when it pertains to drug testing. So the WBC determined they could not say whether it was, you know, uh, purposeful PED use or contaminated meat. But given the, the instances of contaminated meat, where this has happened in the past, they said, okay, we're going to not strip you of the title, but we're going to uh, mandate an immediate rematch. So here we are. Now, uh, Neri's 23 years old, 25-0, 19 knockouts, Mexican fighter. This will be only his second fight outside Mexico. The first one was the first fight against Yamanaka, who's 35 years old, been around forever, been one of the top bantamweights of the last generation. His first pro loss was against Neri. And you know what? He's going to lose again. I think Neri's going to defend this title. Now, Saturday, bunch of fights all over the world. Saturday, March 3rd. Let's start in Puerto Rico, of all places. I hate this fight. Guano and Guano. Uh, Goyanabo, Puerto Rico. Juan Manuel Lopez. Remember him? Yeah, still fighting. I don't like it either. Been stopped five times, been violently stopped a couple times. Five and five since 2011. 
had lost three of his last four over 2013 and 2014 before coming back in 2016 and beating Wilfredo Vasquez, October 2016. It was two Puerto Rican fighting, and uh, he won that fight. Hasn't fought since, I believe. Fighting another Puerto Rican now, Jason Velez, Battle of Puerto Rico. Velez, a younger guy, started his career 23-0 with one draw before losing four straight, although two of them were controversial in 25 and 2016. He went 2-0 last year against weak opposition. What is the meaning of this fight other than to entertain the Puerto Rican fans and have a Puerto Rican grudge match? Not much. I just hope Juanma Lopez doesn't get hurt, okay? In Glasgow, Scotland, on UK Channel 5, Cyclone Promotions is putting on a card, headlined by Edinburgh-born super lightweight prospect, prospect Josh Taylor, who's 11-0 with 10 knockouts, a 2012 Olympian, going up against Humberto Soto. This kid is really showing something as a prospect. Remember, last year he fought O'Hara Davies. That was kind of a battle of prospects, right, to find out who is a, a prospect who was suspect. Well, we found out Davies is suspect. And, um, and Taylor is definitely a prospect to look at. Then he fights the veteran Miguel Vasquez, beats him. Now he's going up against Humberto Soto. This will be the second defense of his WBC silver title at 140 pounds. Soto, the Mexican veteran, been in with everybody, uh, well past his best. He is faded. But all that experience he's going to bring into the ring, uh, I think that this is an outstanding match for Taylor at this stage of his career. If he beats Soto in decisive fashion, I'm telling you, this kid's on the fast track. I like what I see so far. In Sheffield, Yorkshire, UK, Kel Brook making his ring return against a fighter from Belarus, Sergei Robchanka. For Brook, this will be his return, coming off back-to-back -back losses to Triple G in September of 2016 and Errol Spence in May of 2017. Uh, in both those fights, he broke a different side of his face. So basically his entire face, the cheekbones have been reconstructed. Hopefully they'll hold up. Rabchanka is a 31 year old from Minsk, Belarus, uh, was robbed against Anthony Mundine, a split decision loss in Melbourne in 2014, but lost by legitimate TKO to Tony Harrison and Barclays in 2016. If you're being TKO'd by Tony Harrison, who doesn't hit very hard, you're probably gonna lose to even a facially reconstructed Kel Brook. So this is a layup for Kel. I don't love that he's fighting. He might need to hang him up. If he doesn't win this fight decisively, and I mean in dominant, highlight reel fashion, dude needs to hang him up. All right, to the United States, Barclays Center in Brooklyn, uh, Showtime. I talked about the fight before that's canceled on this card, uh, got, or I just should say postponed. Uh, Andre Durrell fighting Jose Uzcategui, a rematch from their fight last May. This is for the interim IBF super middleweight title. You go back to that first fight. Uzcategui was down early, came back, was really starting to put some heat on Durrell. And I thought he was going to beat him. I thought he was going to stop him. Gets DQ'd for hitting him after the bell at the end of the eighth. Watch that highlight again. He hit him right at the bell. I don't think it was egregious at all. I think that was a horrible disqualification stoppage. Of course, we all know what happened after. Andre Durrell's uncle sucker punched Uzkategui in the most classless fashion. Uh, Clarissa Shields, who's from the same hometown as Durrell, defended him and said, good job, Unk, on Twitter. Uh, just another example of her not getting it and being, uh, I'm not going to use the word idiot, but you know, young and 
she has a lot to learn. Anyway, <laughs> uh, for Darrell, look, I, I like Uzcategui in this rematch. I think he's going to win. I, I think that he was coming on and he's going to start this fight the way he was ending that fight. And he's going to win this fight. And he's going to have this interim title and eventually get his shot at Caleb Truax. For Darrell, it may be unbiased because I'm from Michigan. I'm from Detroit. He's from Flint. He was this really great amateur. He had 200 plus amateur wins, 2004 Olympic medalist. Uh, That's big for the American uh, amateur boxing team. I think he was one of the biggest disappointments of American boxing in the last generation. I mean, you look at at least guys like Birdo and stuff, at least they like grabbed a title. And I, I know Darrell did have some good quality wins, but in terms of talent, just a lot of wasted talent, never lived up to his potential. And you look, he had that DQ loss, or I'm sorry, DQ win against Arthur Abraham back in 2010. And had that injury not happened, apparently there was a brain injury there. We don't know. Maybe there would have been more there. And uh, I thought Arthur Abraham acted very, very classless in that fight. And he was getting beat and frustrated and took a cheap shot. And I thought he should have been suspended for a long time for that. But uh, be that as it may, Darrell just never lived up to the expectations or to the potential that was there. Um, you know, even Adrian Broner, who I think didn't have the potential and talent that Darrell had, accomplished more, you could argue. Actually, it's not even really an argument. So, uh, yeah, that's just what I see right there in that fight. Uzkategui gets that win and marches on. And for Darrell, it's time to hang him up. That's it. Now, in the main event... The fight that uh, a lot of people are excited about. And this is one of the bigger heavyweight fights to take place in America in a while. Deontay Wilder going up against Luis Ortiz. 39-0 with 38 knockouts going up against 28-0 with 24 knockouts. But when you look at those records, honestly, guys, they look really impressive. But you start looking at who they fought, when they fought them. I don't know. A lot of people are talking about Deontay Wilder's resume and that he hasn't fought anybody good and nobody elite. But no one's talking about Ortiz. Look at his damn resume. He hasn't fought anybody elite. Both these guys had their best professional win in 2015. For Wilder, it was that first fight with Berman Stavern in early 2015 when he won that WBC title, right? For Ortiz, it was against Bryant Jennings in late 2015. So now we get into, well, what's the better win, right? And, you know, I think you could make an argument, you really could, that uh, Jennings may have been better than Stavern. I I don't know. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it for sure. I'm just saying you could make the argument that head-to-head, Jennings might beat Stavern. But on paper, Stavern did have a title and was more uh, tested than Jennings. Uh, I, I don't know, man. I, but either way, neither of these guys has fought a murderer's row. The difference is Wilder gets reamed on social media, and deservingly so. He, he's completely delusional. He blames everybody but himself and his promotional team for his lack of star power, his lack of fandom. Uh, he blames race and race baits. And guys, if you saw the results of the last presidential election, People are over the race baiting stuff, okay? There's a quarter of the country that loves that stuff, loves it. Everyone else is over it. 
And so for Deontay Wilder to go that route, that ain't helping him. And then, you know, recently he said he's more proven than Ali. He He's trolling. He said he'd knock out Mike Tyson. He's trolling. I get it. He's trying to get attention. He knows those things aren't true. Maybe the Mike Tyson, maybe he would knock out Mike Tyson. But um, I'm not saying he would. I'm saying maybe. But to put himself in the same sentence as Muhammad Ali, that's just blasphemous, man. So he's trying to promote himself. I get that. As much crap as he gets, Luis Ortiz doesn't get the same crap. Now, he's been avoided. I get that. And, you know, it's not as if he he has uh, he's American and brash and, and he can get fights lined up for him just through talking. I get it. He has been avoided. But people are acting like this guy is this proven elite level heavyweight. He's not. Passes the eye test. Skill-wise, yeah. Amateur career, yeah. Although he didn't medal in the Olympics. He didn't medal in big international global tournaments, guys. So he's got skills. There's a lot to like. But look at the resume. Regardless of whose fault it is. He's not proven himself as a top five heavyweight. You could make, you could go both ways with this. You could make the argument that Deontay Wilder is the more proven heavyweight as a pro. Some might say, no, nah, it's, it's Ortiz because, you know, he, he's, he's looked better. He's been more dominant in his wins. I don't know, man. Some of his wins, he didn't look that dominant lately. Either way, I've been saying this since this fight was first signed last year, before it was safe and cool to say it. Deontay Wilder is going to win this fight and win it fairly decisively. As long as he fights smart, if he fights behind that left jab, stays back, uses his length, and forces Ortiz to lunge in to get close, look, if Ortiz gets close, he can beat up Deontay. Wilder and his team know that. They got to make Ortiz pay every time he tries to get close. Just make him pay with the jab. Keep him out here. Just keep him at the end of that jab. Just tap him, tap him, tap him, tap him. By the middle rounds, start landing that jab, but use it to push the guy, to move the guy to your right. Start moving him in range. Start dropping the right hand. Start landing some right hands in the middle to late rounds. Wilder can get Ortiz out of there. This is a simple paint-by-numbers, boxing 101 type of fight for Deontay Wilder. He can fight him the way he fought Berman Stavern. Now, Ortiz is better than Stavern. Better than Stavern on his best night, Okay. He's got way more craft, athleticism, everything. But he still isn't going to be able to get inside on Wilder like that. His feet don't move as well as his hands do. I just think Deontay is going to jab the shit out of him and get him out late with a right hand. That's what I see. Also on this card, Sergey Derevyanchenko staying busy. He's eventually going to get a crack at a middleweight title. Willie Monroe Jr. staying busy. And Gary Antoine Russell, a 2016 Olympian, all three of those guys are fighting on the undercards. Gary Antoine Russell is the younger brother of Gary Russell Jr. So you have two Gary Russells in the same family. I don't know how that makes sense, but it does. Moving on, driving west from Brooklyn, going into the city, going across the river, into the city, into Manhattan, up to Madison Square Garden. We have a fight there. We have two fights there in the light heavyweight division. In the main event, Sergey Kovalev defends his WBO light heavyweight title against Igor Mikhalkin. On paper, this is a complete layup, right? 
this is his fight with Vashislav Shabransky 2.0. Remember, the fight with Shabransky was for the vacant WBO title, which I thought was atrocious. That shouldn't have been a title fight. Either way, Shabransky, a lot of people are looking at this, this guy, Mikulkin, as another Shabransky. But, but here's a big difference, okay? Shabransky had been hurt, dropped, and stopped, softened up by Sullivan Barrera. Remember, Sullivan Barrera knocked him out before he got the shot at Kovala, before Shabransky did. This McCulkin guy, now he's never been hurt, never been knocked down, never been stopped. He hasn't fought anybody, so we don't know. But you don't know until you know. Maybe this dude has an iron chin. Maybe he's a diamond in the rough. We don't know. Either way, this guy's a Russian-born fighter who's now based in uh, Hamburg, Germany. I'm telling you right now, he's going to give Kovalev more of a fight than Shabransky did, okay? But it, it's still a matchup for Kovalev to win and win by late knockout. The fight I'm excited about on this card is the co-main. Dimitri Bivol defending his WBA light heavyweight title against Sullivan Barrera. Bivol is 27, uh, has looked awesome, but hasn't fought anybody. He beat a cab driver in Australia, or no, I'm sorry, it was an Australian cab driver. I think it was in uh, Monaco for the title. And that shouldn't have been a title fight. So both of these guys won versions of the title that are paper thin. As thin as my notes, okay? As thin as my notes. The one thing you could say about Kovalev is he went rounds, you know, he had two fights with Andre Ward. I thought he won the first fight. I thought he was ahead on the second fight until the stoppage. So that alone puts him at the elite level in the light heavyweight division. He was the former champ. So I don't mind him having a title. For Bevel, this is his proving ground. As I mentioned, he's 27 years old, but still an unproven prospect. We're going to get a lot of questions answered against Barrera. A lot of questions about Bevel answered in this fight against Barrera. Uh, Bevel was 268 and 15 as an amateur, but it was mostly at the regional level, a lot of these military tournaments and stuff. So it wasn't at the global level, right? So he didn't fight the best of the best. However, even in a regional type of career, 200 plus fights, almost 300 fights in the Russian system, that's damn good. It's the best amateur system in the world. They're even better than the Cubans now. They really, really are. Now, the Cuban is 35 years old, and he is listed as the bigger man, six foot two to six feet. So he's a little taller, 73-inch reach, vastly more experience as a professional, right? Obviously, the 12 rounds he went with Andre Ward, just that experience alone uh, trumps anything Beevil's done so far as a professional. But on top of that, he had quality wins last year over Joe Smith and Felix Valera. So on paper... You want to say, man, Barrera is going to teach this guy something. You know, he's going to give him a boxing lesson. Here's the X factors, okay? Number one, we don't know how Bevel catches. We, we don't know how, if he could take a shot. But assuming he can, assuming he can, we'll find out. Barrera has been dropped a few times. Never stopped, but he's been dropped, I want to say, four times in recent fights. I believe Valera dropped him, Smith dropped him, and Andre Ward dropped him. So... I think Shabransky might have dropped him too. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I believe all four of those guys dropped him, or at least buzzed him, at least hurt him. So he can be hurt. Bevel punches through the target better than maybe anybody in boxing right now, at least at that prospect level. So 
I think that what we're likely to see here is Barrera having some real early success and maybe even scoring a flash knockdown, backing Bevel up, visibly buzzing him or moving him a little bit. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but it's possible, right? And I think Bevel's going to have to show us something, some real mental toughness, some heart. And I think he's going to do that. He's going to face a little adversity. He's going to be forced with something to think about. He's going to be in there with somebody who can punch back. After four, five, six rounds, though, he's going to start to hit the target. And his relentless pressure and strength and underrated athleticism is going to start to play a role. And I think he's going to stop Sullivan Barrera late in this fight and make a big statement. And as I mentioned before, I think I mentioned in this uh, episode, I interviewed both these guys, Sergey Kovalev and Dmitry Bevel. Check out those interviews on the channel. Both guys said, and their teams were there too, their management, they weren't on camera, they were off camera, but I talked to them you know, off camera. Uh, they both would be willing to fight each other next. If they're both successful, we could very well see a kovalev Bevel fight later this year. And at the time that happens, that's likely the number one and number two guys at light heavyweight. So we, we could have a... Uh, a new light heavyweight champion by the end of this year. How amazing would that be? And, and, and for the record, both guys said they'd love to do a tournament like the World Boxing Super Series if in 2019 there was a light heavyweight version. They both said they'd be willing to do it. Uh, you know, of course, promotional issues, network issues could get in the way of that. We'll see. Also, Tuesday, March 6th, there's a card in Chumburi, Thailand, Tamanun Niamtrong defends his WBA minimum weight title against Filipino fighter Toto Landero uh, for Niamtrong. He has the best nickname in boxing. I've talked about this before. Knockout CP Freshmart. I think those CP Freshmarts are like, I don't know, what would you compare it to, to here in the USA? I guess like a 7-Eleven. And so he puts knockout in front of that. Knockout CP Freshmart. I love that freaking nickname. So uh, that is a fight happening Tuesday from Thailand. Guys, that's it for this week, man. Loaded freaking episode. Um, so we got a lot going on. TNC, of course, uh, back next week. Guys, um, you know, spread the word about the podcast. Please, please, please. I know I'm going to beat it until it's dead in the ground. Apple Podcast, leave a rating, leave a review. And uh, check out the videos that I posted this weekend from the Superfly show. I'll see you at the fights.